All glories to the assembled All glories to the assembled All glories to the assembled All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Shubhapada. November 1st, 2014, in Ljubljana, Slovenia, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 28, Parenjana Becomes a Woman in the Next Life, Text 45, but also with the blessings of Ananta Prabhu and Jaina Tagore Prabhu, who gave class yesterday, we are also going to be speaking about Text 44. We'll start with 45, and then we'll go back to 44. Ajanati Priyatamam Ajanati Priyatamam Yadoparatamangana Yadoparatamangana Susirasanamasadya Susirasanamasadya Yatapurvamupacharat
Ladies? The daughter of King Vidarbha continued, as usual, to serve her husband, who was seated in a steady posture, until she could ascertain that he had passed away from the body. Purport. It appears that the queen did not even talk to her husband while serving. She would simply perform her prescribed duties without talk. Thus, she did not stop rendering service until she could ascertain that her husband had passed from the body. So this is, of course, the relationship in Vanaprastha. This is not the relationship in the Grahastha Ashram. It's not that in the Grahastha Ashram, the husband and wife never talk to each other. So this story is an analogy. This is not a factual historical narrative, but it is more like a fable. And in this particular part of the story, Paranjana has taken birth as a woman, and in this birth as a woman, becomes a pure devotee and goes back to Godhead. And that is through having the shelter of a bona fide spiritual master, which, as we'll see in the upcoming verses, uh, gives this living entity the direct darshan of the Lord. And the analogy chosen for the relationship between the guru and the disciple is that of a vanaprastha woman with her husband. So when we try to understand, you know, what, is, what are spiritual things, often we're given an analogy to something that we can understand. You know, do it like this. Do it like this. I mean, I was just asked in Hungary, uh, it was, yeah, in Hungary, we had a meeting among the ladies, and they said, what is the proper relationship of the disciple to the guru? And this gives us some idea. Well, it's like this. It's done like this. And this, of course, is very important for those of us who want to attain full perfection in Krishna consciousness. So I'm assuming everybody here wants full perfection in Krishna consciousness. Yes? yes. At least theoretically. So if we're going to do that, eva vigachet, one must approach a guru. One must. Tadvidi pranipatena pariprasthena sevya upadekshanti tegyanam gyaninas tadvidarshi. One must approach a guru or a guide. 
that one is not going to be able to find the way on one's own. I mean, maybe in some rare instances, Krishna himself will become the guru and drive your chariot. But generally speaking, 99.999% of the time, you need a guide. I mean, one even needs a guide for the most ordinary things, how to get from one part of the city to the other, or how to become an expert anything, an expert dancer, an expert car mechanic. One needs some sort of guidance. Without guidance, we are lost. I remember when I visited a temple uh, when I was 17 in Chicago, and one of the... I came just ostensibly <laughs> just to buy some spiritual sky incense and some oil. So I, was, I didn't want to take off my boots. It was the winter, and I had big boots that tied. It was very difficult to take them off. So I didn't take off my boots. I just sat on the stairs. And this brahmachari went to the shop and got me the incense. This was not my first visit to a temple. And then he was preaching to me for about two hours, from what I remember. And then I said, well, the real reason I don't want to surrender is I don't want to accept any authority. And that was the mood in those days. So the mood in those days among the youth in America was that if somebody was over 30 years old, you shouldn't listen to them anymore. That was the signs, you know, don't trust anyone over 30, as if we were not going to become eventually ourselves over 30. And, you know, just reject authority. That was the slogan. Now, that was the, the motto of the time, reject authority. So I said, I, I'm rejecting authority. And this one brahmacharya said to me, but you are already accepting so many authorities. So I knew he was right. That was like my big personal secret that I already was, was accepting. So many authorities, something I wouldn't reveal to my friends, you know, because we were all, we're rejecting authority. <laughs> and he said, instead of just accepting a whole bunch of different authorities, a little bit from here, a little bit from there, why don't you find the one authority where you can actually surrender? Also, he convinced me that by taking a little bit from this authority and a little bit from that authority, I was being my own authority. And are we very good as our own authority? Anybody here very good as their own authority? No. Can anyone say that, you know, most of the decisions or all of the decisions I make in life turn out well? No? Things that we think are good for us, are they always good for us? Things that we think are bad for us, are they always bad for us? Right? And all of our mundane authorities, so, you know, they're, they're, I, the old advertisements the 1950s, used to be, you know, most doctors smoke such and such cigarettes. And then the doctors say cigarettes are bad for you. No, they're good for you. They're bad for you. Eat this. Don't eat this. So why not go to the actual authority? If we understand that we're dependent on authority, we cannot function without authority. Can anybody function without authority? Can anybody get all knowledge on their own accord? Of anything. Is that possible? So why not find the best authority? What to speak if, if one become, wants to become enlightened? You know, yet we can understand a little bit through our sense perception. Any intelligent person can know there must be a God. The God must be intelligent, must be very artistic, must be very interested in variety, must have uh, an interest in orderliness, and at the same time, uh, interest in surprises. <laughs> We have both in the creation. But you know, who is God actually? 
What is the nature of God? What is the form of God? What are the activities of God? How to contact God? You have to have a guide. There's just no way around it. And then, okay, I have to have a guide, but how do I behave with that guide? Once I found a guide, we're not going to talk today about who is the bona fide guru or the qualifications of a bona fide guru. So please don't ask me questions about that because that's a different class. But what we're going to look at today is when I understand I need a guru and I find a guru, how do I behave as a disciple? Because that's the topic of these verses, is what's the bona fide disciple? How does the bona fide disciple behave? So there's some, like in the verse Tadvadi Pranipratena, there's some instruction, ask questions, do service, some general instructions in... I believe it's text 5 of the Nectar of Instruction. Srila Prabhupada also gives some idea of what is a bona fide disciple. But here we're getting an idea through an analogy. Like this. Like the Vanaprastha woman who is with her husband. Like that. So, of course, we have a little difficulty in 2014 in Slovenia understanding that analogy. Because... We're not having Varnashram going on in our society in general, and therefore this analogy may not really make much sense to us. This is one of the difficulties, right? The scripture will often give analogies or stories that then in our present time we're just kind of, huh? What is, what is that all about? You know, like Jesus talked about that the, the guru takes care of the disciples like a shepherd with a sheep. But you know, most of us don't deal with sheep. Right? Most of us. Or the, the demigods say that all of the anartas, they go from an ocean to the water in a calf's hoof print. But most of us don't see water in calf's hoof prints as we walk around Libyana. You know, it's, just, it's not... We may see water in dog's hoof prints, but not in calf's hoof prints. So sometimes these analogies are a little difficult, and I thought that we would kind of explore this analogy because not only is this analogy very useful for us to decide how to be a good disciple, what does it mean to be a good disciple, but of course it's also very useful in fulfilling one of the desires of Srila Prabhupada, and that is to establish Varnashram. So I I heard a a talk given by one of my godbrothers in Europe some years ago on women in Varnashram. And I thought, oh, wow, women in Varnashram, very exciting. And let me go and hear what he has to say. So I sat in his class, and instead of being excited, I became upset, and then more upset, and then a little bit more upset, and then a lot more upset. And all he ever talked about was women in the Grahasta Ashram. And I went up to him afterwards. I said, Prabhu, you said not a word about Varna, and you only talked about one ashram. How is that women in Varn Ashram? That's rather women in the Grihasta Ashram, which is not women in Varna Ashram. So here we're not going to look here at Varna because Varna doesn't apply to the Vanaprastas, as we mentioned the other day. Vanaprasta means retired. But we're going to look here at Ashram, and Ashram for women, particularly the Vanaprasta Ashram for women, from these two angles. How we can use this example of a Vanaprasta woman to understand how to be a good disciple and how we can understand the Vanaprastha woman as part of the Varnashram that Srila Prabhupada would like us to institute. So what we have today, in today's verse, text 45, we have Priya. So she sees her husband as very dear. This word Priya is used frequently throughout the Bhagavatam 
to refer either from the wife to the husband or the <coughs> husband to the wife. It, it's quite a common term used either way. I, I, one temple president about a year ago said to me, we often hear how the wife should serve the husband, but how should the husband take care of the wife? And after he asked that, I, my, my antenna went out for that in the Shastra. And you notice very, very often this word Priya is used, someone who's very dear. So this is one indicator of the relationship between the guru and the disciple. This is mentioned in the seventh canto. There should be a great vow of love between the guru and the disciple. The disciple should feel love for the guru. It's not just an official relationship. This is my teacher. You know, this is my master. But there should be some feeling of love. And we've talked many times about what does love mean. Love means that I appreciate the person's good qualities. I appreciate the good qualities and I see the faults, either I just don't see the faults at all, or I, I see the faults as insignificant, or I see the faults as potential good qualities. This is nicely explained in another place in the fourth canto in relationship to Daksha. So love means that I really just focus on the good in someone else, because Rupa Goswami explains in Bhaktivasamita Sindhu that even at the stage of bhava, there are still an artist. So even if you have a very elevated guru at the stage of bhava, there's still going to be some an artist. And Vishnu Chakravati Thakur explains that even camphor is out of the pot. There is still some smell of camphor in the pot. And of course, it's also explained by Rupa Goswami that there may be externally some faults in the body of a pure devotee. The pure devotee may be invalid or you know, deformed or ugly or something like that. But those are not consequential. So love, you don't focus on the faults. You don't focus on uh, imagined faults. You just focus on the good qualities. And you appreciate, of course, the devotees have this love for Krishna also. When Krishna says, I'll coming right back after I kill Kamsa, and he doesn't come back, they don't say, okay, forget this Krishna. No, they still have love for Krishna. And uh, love also means uh, that I depend on you, and you can depend on me. You're my shelter, and I'm also there for you. When you need me, I am there. And uh, if I need you, then uh, you are there for me. I, I trust you, and you can trust me. I, I trust that you have my back, and you can trust that I have your back. So this is, is love. Hmm? What's the other? Uh -huh. that, that the other person is important to you. The other person is important to you. They have value to you. You know, there's a lot of people that we like, we have some affection for, we see their good qualities. Uh, but if they're there or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah, if they're there, it's nice. If they're not there, it's... Oh, so what? But when you really love somebody, they're very important to you. And this is going to go on in the following verses when King Malayatwaja dies, how Vidarbi is just devastated. She doesn't know how she, how she can live without him. So, of course, this is the love the devotee has for God. Without you, the world is empty. And the disciple should also feel like that toward the guru. Without the guru, I have nothing. You know, I just, I have nothing. Your mercy, right, is all I am made of. Without your mercy, I, I, I just, you are the most important person to me in my life. So this is some indications of the word priya. I appreciate you. I, I, I see the, the good in you. And I appreciate your good. That uh, you are my shelter. And I am also there for you. You can count on me. And that you are very important to me. 
you know, very important to my life. So this is Priya. And then we have here a very fascinating serving without speaking. Now this does not mean literally that the disciples should not speak because Krishna says the disciples should ask questions. So that's, of course, the problem with an analogy. The problem with an analogy is there's only some points in common, not all points in common. But the principle of not speaking here is, is certainly relevant. I mean, the disciple is enjoined, is ordered to ask questions. Just like when Mahaprabhu was speaking to Sarvabhama Bhattacharya and he didn't ask any questions, Sarvabhama Bhattacharya was disturbed. Why aren't you asking any questions? I don't know if you understand or not. So it's very important. And without these questions from the disciple to the guru, we would have no Shastra at all. Yes? Shastra wouldn't exist. Our Shastra is made up of the questions of the disciple and the answers of the guru. So again, this doesn't literally mean that the disciples should serve the guru without speaking. But what is, what is the point of this analogy here? That the speaking between husband and wife in the Grahasta Ashram, as we mentioned the other day, it's one of the great pleasures of the Grahasta Ashram. Krishna says this to Rukmini when he's joking with her. And she doesn't joke back with him, she just faints. You know, he's saying, well, I, don't, I don't really think I'm a good husband for you, and you're much more qualified than I am, and... You know, it's not too late. Maybe Shishupal will still have you, even though now you're a grandmother. You know, you can, and there was no remarriage of, of uh, divorced people in those days. But he said, you know, you can go and find Shishupal or any of the other kings. They're much better than me. I have so many faults. And Rukmini thought, oh, he's rejecting me. He's, he's throwing me out. And she just fainted. And, and when Krishna picked her up, he said to her, oh, my dear wife, I wanted some pleasure. He said, you know, all day we're working hard. Of course, Krishna doesn't really work hard. He says, all day we're working hard, and we come home, and our enjoyment is these nice joking talks between the husband and wife. But So these talks between the husband and wife, they're a subtle form of sex enjoyment. That's what they are. And the wife who's enjoying such joking talks with the husband, uh, generally, in this material world, generally she's not doing that only to please the husband, she's doing it also to please herself. And we see this, that if there's a family where the husband doesn't talk to the wife, where he doesn't spend time with the wife, joking with her and being friendly, she gets very disturbed. Oh, you don't love me anymore. Why should I stay with you anymore? Why should I serve you anymore? So I've seen this in in many families. You know, if the husband just comes home and just, you know, sits down and relaxes and reads the Bhagavatam or works on the computer, takes prasadam and goes in his room, and the wife becomes very disturbed. She says, what's, what's the point of my life anymore if you won't spend time uh, laughing and joking with me? So here the, in, the indicator is that the disciple is not serving the guru for their own pleasure. That the disciple is serving the guru for the guru's pleasure, not for their pleasure. Of course, the disciple gets pleasure in the guru's pleasure. Like the devotee gets pleasure in Krishna's pleasure. And Krishna gets pleasure in the devotee's pleasure. So it's, it's subtle, but it is definitely different. It's just like the pleasure we get from cooking something for a friend and the pleasure we get from eating. You know, or the, uh, we were with some ladies the other day, and they were saying, oh, we give our friend a birthday present, and she just doesn't even smile. She just, you know, looks at the present. And we're, looking, we're waiting for her to enjoy the present. Uh, why do they want her to enjoy the present? Because that's, their, that's what they bought it for. 
They bought the present for their friend's enjoyment. They wanted to enjoy their friend's enjoyment. Hmm? So the disciple wants to enjoy the pleasure of the guru. That is the disciple's pleasure. And the, also the devotee wants to enjoy the pleasure of Krishna. That is, that, is, that is the natural way of enjoyment, just like the hand enjoys the pleasure of the stomach, yes? The hand doesn't try to enjoy it directly. The hand doesn't try to steal pleasure from the stomach, but the hand naturally enjoys when the stomach is pleased. So the disciples should serve the guru without looking for their own pleasure. Not trying to take pleasure from the guru, but be happy that the guru is happy. And this is a very subtle thing, and we see, I mean, just if we're going to be honest, we see that many, many people in our Hare Krishna movement serve the disciple for their own pleasure. It's very common. And as soon as the guru doesn't satisfy them, then they become angry. And I've seen this dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. All over the world. Very common occurrence. Oh, the guru doesn't write me a letter, the guru doesn't talk to me, the guru doesn't smile at me. It was a bad guru. I don't like him anymore. I'm not going to serve him anymore. He gave me some service that that didn't work out right. I'm not going to serve him anymore. Or he just chastises me and tells me what I've done wrong. He doesn't praise me. I don't like him anymore. See this over and over. I get very, very angry. So rather this example, the Vanaprastha woman with her husband, she's not even speaking. She's, she's not caring anything to get something from the husband, simply serving the husband. So I want to go back and refer to the previous verse, also text 44. The translation is, the daughter of King Vidarbha wore old garments, and she was lean and thin because of her mouths of austerity. Since she did not arrange her hair, it became entangled and twisted in locks. Although she remained always near her husband, she was as silent and unagitated as the flame of a disturbed fire. So this is one of the few, few places in the Bhagavatam, where specifically the duties of the woman in the Vanuprastha order are given. So later in the seventh canto, there are general duties given for Vanuprastas. And as Vanuprastas are both male and female, those instructions would apply to both male and female. However, this is a particular instruction for the woman in the Vanaprastha Ashram. And we see first instruction is she should wear old clothes. Next instruction is vows of austerity. Next instruction is not to comb one's hair, to have dreadlocks. And next instruction is to be unagitated. Okay, so we're going to look at this purport. When one begins to burn firewood, there is smoke and agitation in the beginning. Although there are so many disturbances in the beginning, once the fire is completely set, the firewood burns steadily. Similarly, when both husband and wife follow the regulated principles of austerity, they remain silent and are not agitated by sex impulses. So I would say that these few sentences are are such important guidance for our grahastas and vanaprastas in the Hare Krishna movement. Uh, many, many times when devotees get married, they're just shocked that after they got married, get married, they're disturbed by sexual desires. They're just completely shocked. Like, oh my God, I'm disturbed by sexual desires. What's happened? I guess I'm not a devotee anymore. But Prabhupada says that that's to be expected. He says when one begins to burn firewood, there is smoke and agitation in the beginning, although there are so many disturbances in the beginning. Once the fire is completely set, the firewood burns steadily. So this is the idea that in the Grahasta Ashram, yes, at first the young man, young woman 
maybe madly in love with each other and so forth and so on with all the results of that. But over time, things become steady to the point that when they're ready to take the Vanaprastha ashram when the husband is 50, there's no more agitation of sex desire. This is one of the main functions of the Grahastha ashram. It's to move somebody away from lust and even performed without Krishna consciousness, a properly done Grahastha ashram will have that effect to some extent. And therefore, in all civilized society, there was marriage. Now, in society, marriage has become some sort of an illusion. So people are just not getting married anymore. This is happening uh, certainly in Europe. Europe is, I think, the worst place in the world for people just simply not getting married. Uh, either they have just you know boyfriends, girlfriends, or they just stay single and, and so forth. It's it's really quite a problem, and this problem has infiltrated our Hare Krishna movement. So people just don't get married, and for most people, without going through the Grahastha Ashram, getting rid of this lust and sexual desire is going to be extremely difficult. I mean, obviously, bhakti is strong enough without any help from uh, varna or ashram, but it's quite difficult. So this is the idea that when one reaches the vanaprastha stage that one is free from sex desire, and particularly if the ashrams are done in bhakti. So if one is a grahasta in bhakti and then becomes a vanaprasta in bhakti, then the sex desire will diminish. And of course, as we mentioned the other day, that the brahmachari can go directly to the vanaprasta ashram. So if one is in the brahmachari ashram and sees that already they are not agitated, that already they're, they're, it's, there's like a steady flame, a fire as compared to sattvagun, so already if they're like a steady flame and they're not agitated by sex desire, then no need to go through the grahastasha. And Prabhupada says, at such a time, continuing with the purport, both husband and wife are benefited spiritually. One can attain this stage of life by completely giving up a luxurious mode of life. So this is the part of the vanaprastha ashram that one doesn't take any more luxuries. And this, of course, in the traditional vanaprastha was quite severe. So going on this purport in the word, in this verse, the word chiravasa refers to very old torn garments. The wife especially should remain austere, not desiring luxurious dresses and living standards. So we can understand why this is particularly applied to the wife, because generally it's particularly women who want very luxurious clothes and living standards. I mean, of course, many men also, they want to buy 400 euro suits and drive jaguars and it's not that only women desire uh, luxury and opulence by any means it's, it's not that all the men in the world are austere and all the women are, are not austere but certainly there's a ten, more of a tendency among a soul in a female body which is why the soul entered the female body to want luxury so in the Vanaprastha ashram uh, the woman gives up all luxury Prabhupada said she should accept only the bare necessities of life and minimize her eating and sleeping there should be no question of mating. Simply by engaging in the service of her exalted husband, who must be a pure devotee, the wife will never be agitated by sex impulses. Now that's quite interesting, because generally, by serving the husband, the wife becomes agitated by sex impulses. But in the, that is how she becomes agitated by sex impulses. But in the Vanaprastha ashram, the service is at a different level. In the Vanaprastha ashram, the service is simply on the platform of a spiritual relationship. Prabhupada says, the Vanaprastha stage is exactly like this. Although the wife remains with the husband, she undergoes severe austerities and penances that although both husband and wife live together, there is no question of sex. 
Now, of course, there is also Vanaprastha ashram where the husband and wife don't live together. And our own Srila Prabhupada, when he took the Vanaprastha ashram, he lived separately from his wife. So in the Vanaprastha ashram, one can live, and this is also mentioned directly in the Bhagavatam, one, one can live separately or one can live together. But Prabhupada's making the point that even if one lives together, then one's living together without sex on a gross or subtle platform. In this way, both husband and wife can live together perpetually. So the point is that if one can live in the Vanaprastha ashram as husband and wife together without any sexual agitation, there is no need then for the husband to take sannyas. And Prabhupada says this in a number of places. Since the wife is weaker than the husband, this weakness is expressed in this verse with the word upapatim. Upa means near to or almost equal to. Being a man, the, gen- the husband is generally more advanced than his wife. Now, of course, we have here the word that Srila Prabhupada uses many places, which is generally. Generally. Is that always true that the husband is more spiritually advanced than the wife? Is that always true? No. Prabhupada had a sister who was more spiritually advanced than her husband and who actually became basically like the guru of her husband. And we have, of course, Kaliya, whose wives were all devotees, and he was a demon. And by the blessings and good fortune of his wives, he became a devotee. And the Acharyas say when his wives offered prayers to Krishna, that he was you know, pretty tired from Krishna kicking him for so long and dancing on his hood, so he was kind of exhausted and at the point of death. So when it was time for him to offer prayers, he couldn't think very well. So he, just, he heard his wives' prayers, and he just summarized them for his own prayers. What my wives said, that was good. So that's another example. Of course, we have the wives of the brahmanas also, who are much more spiritually advanced than their husbands. And when they returned after seeing Krishna, the husbands condemned themselves and respected their wives. And we, so we have many cases like this. Of course, uh, famous Mirabai was certainly more advanced than her husband. So this is Prabhupada will, he, he will always say, he, Prabhupada will always, or almost always say, generally. Uh, generally. Just like generally, women are more interested in luxurious clothes and luxurious this. But not always. Some women are very naturally very austere, and there are sometimes the men who want the, you know, whatever, <laughs> the designer shoes and all that kind of stuff. All right. Nonetheless, the wife is expected to give up all luxurious habits. So even if the wife is not as austere and not as advanced, still she's expected to come to that standard. So in the Vanaprastha ashram, the woman is expected to come to the standard of giving up all luxury. She should not even dress nicely or comb her hair. Hair combing is one of the main businesses of women. That is certainly true. For some women. For some women. I get talking about generally. I'm just thinking of the main, the, one of my main symptoms of becoming a teenager was all of a sudden spending an hour on my hair when I was like 13. I had never done that, never cared when I was a child, and all of a sudden I was In the Vanaprastha stage, the wife should not take care of her hair. Thus, her hair will become tangled in knots. So I remember when I first read this purport, I was... How old was I? 21. I think I was 21. Vikram's father was 
just a baby. And uh, this this Bhagavatam had just come out. She will probably just translate it, this Bhagavatam. So I went to our, our GBC, Rupanuga, and I said, am I going to have to do that? <laughs> and he said, no, 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 don't worry. Uh, but it's it, you know it's interesting as as uh, when I entered the Vanaprastha ashram you know I started wondering well what am I supposed to do am I supposed to have like am I supposed to have, tear my clothes and should I wear dreadlocks at our program last night one uh, girl sitting in front of me had two dreadlocks sticking out of the bottom of her hair and you know I was thinking it looked really dirty and, and ugly and you know but there's this injunction that the Vanaprastha woman is supposed to have matted hair. Of course, the Bhagavatam also says that the brahmachari should have matted hair. You know that, right? Everybody knows that? It's in the seventh canto of the Bhagavatam. Thus her hair will become tangled in knots. Consequently, the wife will no longer be attractive to the husband. Of course, nowadays, some men do seem to be attracted by women with dreadlocks, so you never know. And she herself will no longer be agitated by sex impulses. So that is also interesting. You know, we have a, a debate going on right now in some circles of this kind about the importance of clothing. How important is clothing? But here Srila Prabhupada is saying that if you change your, the way you dress and the way you take care of your hair, it will affect your consciousness. That if the woman's wearing old clothes and dreadlocks, then her own internal sex impulses will decrease. In this way, both husband and wife can advance in spiritual consciousness. This advanced stage is called Paramahamsa stage. And once it is obtained, both husband and wife can be actually liberated from bodily consciousness. And now Prabhupada goes back to the analogy. If the disciple remains steady in the service of the spiritual master, he need no longer fear falling down into the clutches of Maya. So we're gonna, our time is running out. We're going to look just briefly at the principles here of the women in the Vanaprastha Ashram. And then we're going to just very briefly relate this back to the disciple. So the principle here is austerity and selflessness, and especially austerity as uh, in reference to sexual desire, to sexual attractiveness. So generally the way that the woman exhibits her lust is in dressing and decorating her body. Generally the way the man exhibits his lust is by showing off his opulences and his cleverness, you know, his strength. It's, it's the same kind of thing, but it's done a little differently. So the women don't generally advertise their lust by showing how smart they are and how rich they are and how big of a car they drive and you know how many trees they can lift with one hand. That's usually what the men do. And the men don't usually show off their attractiveness by wearing you know, very tiny clothes and, and things like that and, and dressing their hair. But it's the same basic principle, although men and women do it in a little bit different way. And I remember meditating on this quite some years ago. You know, what is the... And I was, I was meditating on it. If I, can I be honest? Is that all right? Is that, am I allowed to be really honest here? You know, so I was meditating on this because when, when we took Vanaprastha back in, in 1996, so there was not a lot of guidance in the Hare Krishna movement. I mean, now there's a lot of Vanaprastas both living separately and living together, and a lot of people entering the Vanaprastha ashram without having gone through the Grahastha ashram, both men and women. Uh, so now there's becoming more of a consciousness about what is Vanaprastha, and I participate in some meetings both at Nuvrajdam and in Radhadesh among the Vanaprastha ladies who have regular gatherings to understand the Vanaprastha ashram. But when we took the Vanaprastha ashram, it was, it was kind of a, a mist 
and a fog, you know, okay, well, what, what do we do? How, how do we behave? What changes do we make? And I remember I immediately took off some, I immediately gave my bangles to my daughter and, you know, took off my nose ring and started wearing just white with borders. And, but I, I still wore earrings. So for many years I still wore earrings, but very simple. I would wear very, very simple earrings. And several times I would take them off. And then the way I was trained, I was brought up in a very aristocratic family. And the way my mother trained me is you don't go out of the house without jewelry. You just simply don't go out of the house without jewelry. If you don't have jewelry, you're naked, and you just, just, just don't do it. You know. So this is also explained in the sixth canto by Kasyapa to Diti. He says, do not go out of the house without being properly dressed and ornamented. And that was how I was trained, so it was, it was very, very difficult. It took me years. You know, and then I would make the earrings smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more and more discreet, you know. And still, you know, I'd take them off. Okay, I'm not going to wear any jewelry anymore. No, no, I have to put them on. I don't feel dressed without my jewelry. And then one day I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm traveling around the world with one tiny little bag, and in my tiny little bag I have to have a couple pieces of gold to worry about, you know. And, and so I, I finally just said, you know, a stupid thing that I'm carrying around the world with me. And I got rid of them. And in doing that, I, I was really meditating on, you know, what, what is this lust? What is it exactly? And I thought, oh, for a woman, it's a way to control men through, through lust and a way to control women through envy. So I'm sure for the men it's also a similar kind of thing. So that somehow, if, if I appear sexually attractive, which gets more and more ridiculous as you get older anyway, whether you have a little piece of gold in your hair or not, it's just not going to really matter. So, you know, so that the reason that I want to appear sexually attractive is so men will desire me and then I can control them. I can say, I have something that you want, and if you're nice to me, I might give it to you. you know, and, and that you can control the women through envy. And that this is what lust was all about. It was trying to be the center and trying to be God and trying to be the controller. And again, men and women do it in, in different ways. Uh, men also do it to women by trying to be the hero, and women do it to men by saying, you are my hero, and has all these different uh, psychologies. And when I saw that, I became actually nauseated. You understand? And I thought, this is really disgusting. This is really a disgusting thing. Why do I want to try to control and manipulate other people? What a, what a nasty thing. So that's the essence of this. Uh, the essence of this is that one should give up the desire uh, to try to manipulate other people and try to control other people uh, for your own pleasure by promising them something and with the idea that then you're going to exploit them and use them. And that's kind of the essence of the whole material world in a nutshell. You know, that is it that I am going to try to use you and exploit you for my purposes by promising you something in return, which I may or may not give you. <laughs> All right, Krishna. So that needs to be given up. Now, the details here, you know, I, I really don't... And I, I, I thought seriously. I really did think seriously. Uh, you know, should I wear old torn clothing and should I wear dreadlocks? I mean, I really did seriously consider that. It wasn't like I just said, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. But I thought, well, I don't think Srila Prabhupada would like that very much. You know, if I came in front of Srila Prabhupada with old torn clothing and dreadlocks, if you just lived in Vrindavan, that would be a different thing. In Vrindavan, you know, practically every tenth person has old torn clothing and dreadlocks. You see some of the most... Yes? How many of you have been to Vrindavan? 
So there's a lot of spiritually eccentric people in Vrindavan. I remember on the Parikrama path, there was this one man walking down the Parikram Mart, and he was wearing a suit full of lights that were flashing <laughs> as he was walking down the Parikram Mart. So they have all kinds of interesting people, and big dreadlocks, you know, two feet in the air, and tridents, and all kinds of strange things. So I thought, you know, if you lived in Vrindavan and you had just old torn clothing and, and dreadlocks, it probably would just be fine. But if you're going to go anyplace else, even Mayapur, I, I think the Mayapur council would probably say something. You know, Excuse me, Amrila, what have you done to your hair? So it wouldn't be very favorable, I thought, for a preaching movement, just like Prabhupada didn't want the brahmacharis to wear dreadlocks. So the, the details of the Shastra... You know, some people are really, you have to follow every deep, but that's absurd. You know, there has to be some application for time, place, and circumstance. But the basic principle is there. The basic principle of, of simplicity, and particularly giving up this lust. Not just on, on a gross platform, not just grossly not having sexual intercourse, but on, on the subtle platform of not wanting to steal any enjoyment from the opposite sex for one's own purposes. And my dear friends, that is a very deep and subtle thing. We could talk about that for many, many, many hours. How is it that most of us uh, continue to steal some enjoyment from the opposite sex uh, for our own exploitation? And it can be done on a very, very, very subtle platform. And it's, it's actually quite a nasty and an ugly thing. So this is some indication of vanaprastha for women. What is the idea of performing, of course, penances and austerities, severe austerities and penances, of course, in the modern day, just following the four Vedic principles, waking up early in the morning, chanting 16 rounds, offering all your vegetarian food to Krishna. For most people, those are pretty severe austerities and penances. But for someone in the vanaprastha ashram, one should take on, if possible, some additional austerities. Of course, there's the austerity of traveling to holy places or staying in a holy place. And as we mentioned the other day, Prabhupada says the renounced ashrams, particularly the members should give learned discourses and should write transcendental literature. So this is the main business of those in the Vanaprastha ashram, whether men or women. And although we often talk about women should be married, women should be married, women should be married, women should be married, and they 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 should be married, and then they should be married. And they should be mothers, and they should be mothers, and they should be mothers, and then after that they should be mothers, and they should be mothers, and mothers, and mothers. The Bhagavatam, my dear friends, also talks about women being renunciates. It does. It's right here. It really does talk about women being renunciates. It does. It does, it does, it does, it does, it does. And it does some more. And therefore, it, that's also one of the bona fide ashrams for women. And if we're going to talk about varn ashram, if we're going to talk about varn ashram, it does not mean that women spend their whole life making chapatis and changing nappies. And that when their children have grown up, they just still make chapatis and change nappies of their grandchildren. And that's all that they do. I know this is very shocking to the right wing of the Hare Krishna who might consider reading this verse in the Bhagavatam, and if you think I'm a little annoyed at this, you are right. Okay, and then to, to take this, sorry about that, uh, to take this then to the, the, the guru and disciple. So one should be serving the disciple again in austerity. One should be willing to undergo great austerity to serve the guru. 
That is the real disciple. Uh, great austerity, whether that means living in a temple ashram, whether that means going out in the cold. You know, our biggest book distribution time is, of course, around Christmas, when it is very cold in most of the world, unless you live in Australia, when it's very warm. Uh, but for most of the civilized people who live in the northern hemisphere and don't live upside down under the equator, uh, it's, it's a very austere time. You know, there are so many austerities that we take for Srila Prabhupada. So many austerities. Running a temple, running a farm, uh, running prasadam distribution uh, businesses, taking care of the deities. Uh, Just being fixed in our our normal, our vows of the disciple, taking good care of our husband, good care of our wife, good care of our children, keeping to our vows in the Brahmacharya ashram or Vanaprastha ashram. One should be willing to take great trouble. And of course, Krishna showed this himself. When Krishna and Sudama went into the forest to gather wood for their spiritual master, even in a storm. So one should be willing to take as much trouble for the guru as the Vanaprastha woman takes. And because women in general, and it is definitely in general, not all women, but because women in general have a harder time with austerity than men. In general, it's more difficult for women to perform austerity than it is for men. Still, the woman in the Vanaprastha ashram is expected to perform severe austerities. So even if we come from a rich family or even if we're from a Western nation, you know, no matter what it may be, whatever our background, whatever our inclination, even if it's difficult, then just like this, this woman, not only is she a woman, my dear friends, she is a princess. She's a princess. So how difficult must it be for her to wear dreadlocks and torn clothing and live in the forest without even talking to her husband? must be very difficult. But by doing this, she sees God face to face. (coughs) We'll see in the next few verses. She will see God face to face. Nice, huh? So by, by taking some voluntary austerity to serve the guru, to please the guru, to serve the guru's mission, to forward the guru's mission. And we will also see God face to face. So this nice analogy of the disciple, uh, the guru as priya, as in today's verse, seeing the guru as very priya, as very dear, having real love, which means you see the good qualities, uh, you trust the guru, your guru is your shelter, that you also can be trusted by the guru. Yes, that the guru is important to you, not just some picture you have on the, you know, on some table in your room. And that one is willing to take austerities for the guru, just like, just like the renounced woman. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements. Yes, Prabhu. Thank you very much for the nice class. I'm just wondering if... Uh could interpret uh, verse 45, meaning um, that the, 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 the queen does not talk to mm. the husband as the disciple wants, because it says in the verse that the guru, I mean the husband, is sitting in a steady posture, which mm. is the meaning of guru, and he does not move his heavy. And I'm just wondering whether you could say that the disciple, once he has taken initiation, he does not talk, which means he does not argue with the guru anymore. He can ask questions before, he can question the guru. 
and can remove the question disciple, but once the deal is done, then basically it's just a march. Well, I don't, I don't know though, because do we have examples? I mean, that, that's a, certainly an interesting way to understand this, but I don't think we have examples like once Arjuna becomes Krishna's disciple, he doesn't stop asking questions. And he even argues. I mean, he does, politely. But he says, what's one of Krishna's arguments, Arjuna's arguments to Krishna? Okay, about the mind, where Arjuna says to Krishna, I don't like this yoga system you taught me. I don't think, I don't think it's practical. You've just given me an instruction, but I, I, don't, I don't like it. It's not a practical instruction. I can't control my mind like that. I'll probably fail. And then I'll give up all everything material, and I'll lose that, and I'll also lose everything spiritual. He said it appears, it appears impractical. What's another example of a... Dhruva, when he went Narada Muni, he said, I can't follow your instruction. But something else with Arjuna? Because Arjuna said, now I become your disciple, so surrendered unto you. What other challenging questions did he ask, or arguing questions? What? He's going to create a Vanasankara by fighting with Krishna. Yes, definitely. But I think that was before he became a disciple, yes? Did he ask that? I think that was before. I think so. But with, with, with your asking whether or not we could interpret it this other way, what about after he becomes a disciple? I mean, I could look it up and see if that verse is before or after. I'm not sure. I'm not positive it's before, but I think it's before. I know of at least two other times that Arjuna asked a, a, a question that was arguing. Yes, yes, he, and Arjuna said it twice. He said, you're giving me contrary instructions. He said, you're telling me to give up all abominable activities and take up Buddha yoga, and then you ask me to fight, which is abominable. So give up all, put, keep all abominable activities far distant and take up Buddha yoga. Okay, I got that. I walk away from the battlefield, and I focus on intellectual activities. Now go fight, huh? And Arjuna says, I don't understand your equivocal instruction. And the other one was when he said, I don't understand how you could instruct the sun god. So when Krishna said, I instructed the sun god, Arjuna didn't say, oh, that's nice. He didn't say that. He said, that's not possible. We're contemporaries. I know when you were born. I know your, your birthday. I know your birth year. And you couldn't have instructed the sun god millions of years ago. So I do see that that's there. Also, um, Mars Prickett with Sukadev Goswami, when he asked Sukadev Goswami, how do you keep people from going to hell? And Sukadev Goswami said, Hmm? No, austerity is atonement, prize chitta. And Mars Prickett said, I don't agree with you. He said, I don't, I don't like your answer. That's not a good answer. He said, it's like an elephant taking a bath. And, 
And Sukadeva was very pleased with that. He said, thank you. And then he told the story of Adamiel. So I see that the, the challenging questions by the disciple after initiation, of course, they're offered with respect. Prabhupada says, blind following and absurd inquiries are condemned. So perhaps we could say that this would refer to absurd inquiries? I think that Prayajuna did not doubt Krishna's position. He, he asked two questions afterwards, as you mentioned, that were revealing that he was not understanding the point. He said, for example, you know, how can you speak to the Son of God? And the other one. So therefore, he, he was with respect. He was definitely asking with respect for his own clarification. clarification. Yes, he was asking for clarification. What I was more referring to is that whether the talking means well, you know, I think your book is good because uh, uh-huh. you do this, this, and that, and therefore I just that definitely. I, I would, I would. That's basically the talk yeah. back, the talk back type of thing. Like, yes. Know, I think your book is because yes, yes, that that would be that would be. Inquiry has to be there. And sometimes inquiry for clarification, which may involve saying, it seems to me that you're saying two opposite things. But I'm saying that in reference to the, the previous lines, he, what he says that the, he's actually sitting in a steady position. Mm. When you start talking mm. that the guru is bogus, which happens a lot, Yes. then uh, it makes it unsteady. Uh-huh. Is not steady oh, that is really a nice insight. That is really a nice insight. Because Srila Prabhupada says that quite a lot, actually, that that you can, you know, challenge the guru before initiation, but once you make the relationship steady, then there's no question anymore. So that when you're asking questions after initiation, they're asked with the idea that here's the authority who's going to clear them up for me, not I'm asking this question to show that you're bogus. So don't talk about the steadiness of the guru. Ah, I don't question the guru's steadiness. The first line it says he's, steady. he's steady in that place. He's steady. So I don't talk about that, but I, talk, I ask questions to clarify. What to clarify. I don't what oh, that is, very, that is very nice. I like that very much. That's nice, huh? Because we do see that also, yes? Somebody accepts a guru, and then the guru says something they don't like, and then they reject, reject them. And we definitely have this in our Hare Krishna movement. I mean, there are times when you're supposed to reject the guru. If the guru, like Sukaracharya, says, no, don't worship Vishnu anymore. You know, here's Vishnu standing in front of you, don't worship him. So there are some times, or if the guru is an impersonalist, one should reject a guru who's an impersonalist. And also it's explained in the Hari Bhakti Vilas that if the guru is helplessly entangled in material sense gratification, that one should take shelter elsewhere. But that's after trying to rectify the situation. But yeah, this tendency of of either taking you know it's taking the guru to fill my own fulfill my own desires, and thinking if the guru doesn't fulfill my own desires, they're a bad guru. Taking the guru just as a pet, you know that we also see a lot. Uh, I was in some place where the uh, some someone visited the place and they noticed that their picture was on the devotee's altar. They said, oh, I see you put my picture on your altar, so you're accepting me as your guru. <laughs> sort of interesting exchange. And the devotee said, yes, yes, we've accepted you as our guru. So then the, the person said, well, 
Is it just my picture, or are you willing to listen to my instructions? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, we are willing to listen to your instructions. But often they're not. Often they only want instructions that, you know, you're very wonderful, every, everything's fine, not some difficult instructions. And yes, one should not, I mean, questioning, questioning the guru after initiation is a very serious thing. It's just like it, divorce should be a very serious, because this is, the analogy here is to a marriage, and that the wife is continuing to serve her husband even though he's no longer providing any kind of sense gratification for her. You know, she's serving him just as in his... She's not getting anything from her. Is she getting anything at all? Nothing. Nothing at all. And so she's not saying, oh, now, now that you've gone to the forest and you're doing austerity, you know, now I'm going to reject you. But she's still serving. So disciples should be like that. Rejection of guru, rejection of husband, rejection of life should be for very serious things. It can be there. It can certainly be there. You know, if Krishna's calling you, please come and feed me. And your husbands are just ignoring him and just doing their yagyas. Uh, you can certainly leave your husbands and go right in the forest and give Krishna some food. You know, or Krishna is standing in front of you and saying, please give me some charity. And you've already said, yes, sir, I'll give you whatever you want. And your guru says, oh, this is the Lord. Don't surrender to the Lord. If you surrender to the Lord, you'll give away my property, and then I'll be poor, and then you can reject the guru. But otherwise, it should be, it's a very serious step. It's not a, it's not a small thing. And if one wants to advance in spiritual life, then one should examine the guru thoroughly beforehand and not disturb that steady uh, position. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I think it's time for prasadam. Yes? Thank you very much.